Welcome to Seekers and Scholars, a podcast found at the intersection of spiritual and scholarly inquiry, and coming to you from the Mary Baker Eddy Library in Boston and online at mbelibrary.org. I'm Jonathan Eder, Programs Manager at the Library, and I'm very happy to be welcoming Professor Jean Kildee for a discussion on gender, spirituality, and the architecture of the Mother Church. Welcome, Jean. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me, Jonathan. It's delightful to have you with us for this topic. I'm just going to say a little bit about your background. Dr. Kildee is Director of the Religious Studies Program at the University of Minnesota. Among her areas of academic specialization are religion in America, religious architecture and sacred space, and women in religion. Jean is the author of When Church Became Theater, The Transformation of Evangelical Architecture and Worship in 19th Century America, published by Oxford University Press in 2002, and Sacred Power, Sacred Space, An Introduction to Christian Architecture and Worship, published in 2008, also by University of Oxford Press. Jean was part of our first class of research fellows at the Mary Baker Eddy Library in 2004, Her research here contributed meaningfully to an article titled Material Expression and Maternalism in Mary Baker Eddy's Boston Churches, How Architecture and Gender Compromised Mind, which was published in Material Religion, the Journal of Objects, Art, and Belief in 2005. For this work, Jean received the 2005 Jane Dempsey Douglas Prize for Best Article on the History of Women and Christianity, from the American Society of Church History. Congratulations on that award, Jean. Thank you. We're, uh, we're so happy to have you with us, Jean. I'm just wondering what it's like for you when you visit a sacred space, when you visit a church building. How does your background as a scholar in this field inform what you're looking at, what you're thinking about? I think I do think a little differently about religious spaces than um, you know most people. I really look at religious buildings and spaces as constitutive components of religious experience um, and practice. The space itself has an important role to play. It's an actor, if you will, in Mm. uh, people's religious experience. It is also an expression of um, religious experience. The practice of building itself is an important part of religion. We tend to think about religion, particularly if we're from a Christian or Protestant perspective, we tend to think about religion as being articulated primarily discursively through language, um, prayer, uh, sermons. But I, I think you know, even for Protestants, but for many other religions, that the practices that people engage in are also very, very central. Religious building is one of those really important practices. That said, one way to think about buildings is that they actually speak. They speak to us about what the people have meant, what they have, the meanings they have embedded in the buildings. So the buildings themselves can tell us something about the religious lives of the people who worship, who have built them and worship within them. So when you first encountered the two edifices at the Mother Church at the Christian Science Plaza here in Boston, how did they speak to you? In, in very different ways, obviously. I believe I was in the um, original church initially when I was doing my field work for the first book, when church became theater. 
And that was looking at evangelical churches of the late 19th century, predominantly auditorium-style, Richardsonian, Romanesque-type churches. And that church, when I went into it, had a very, oh, um, intimate feeling. It's very domestic in scale. The materials are rich and kind of sumptuous. There's the wonderful green and gold mosaic of the the floor in the wainscot and the curly red birch uh, balcony, the walls, the warm color of the walls and the gilt. It's a very intimate kind of space, very plush uh, upholstery. It's just a warm and, and intimate type of space. The lighting itself is warm. And when I did go into the extension, I was really struck by how different. A building built only 12 years later by the same organization, and obviously a whole different architectural style in the kind of Renaissance revival uh, with the dome and the portico and the the granite, um, smooth granite walls as opposed to the rough ashlar of the uh, original church. And then inside, it was so big and spacious and wide open with the the dome on top, the light flooding in. Just a very different feeling in those two churches. And so as I'm, I'm in those churches, beginning to wonder, well, what are these buildings telling us about worship mm. for this Christian science congregation? What are they telling us about the congregation and their how they worship and their values and what was important to them? And that's what sort of got me, those types of questions got me thinking about exploring uh, the questions more. So did that then inspire you to be a research fellow here at the Mary Baker Eddy Library to explore those questions? It did, yes. I had finished the book in 2002, and I was still sort of toying with these two buildings. They were so different um, in my experience of um, religious architecture at the turn of the century. And the fact that they're, they were instigated, should we say, by a woman, by Mary Baker Eddy, who is one of the very few women to actually found a religion, um, a denomination, a Christian denomination, it just really interested me as to you know what she was thinking about when she um, instigated these two churches, as she conceived of these two churches. What was she trying to do and why were they so different? What, what changed between the time the first church was being built and the time the second church was being built. Something had to have shifted. There was something going on there. So that's why when the um, the library presented the fellowship opportunities, I was just really thrilled to be able to, to go there and spend some time working in the archives and working in the uh, Mary Baker Eddy papers. It was I couldn't have written this paper without having that experience there. So what did you discover? What did you uncover looking through those papers and the documentation that's here that helped answer what had changed to account for two such different architectural styles in these edifices? Well, if I was not only going through the papers, but, you know, just thinking about the spaces themselves and what they were telling me, it was clear that in the original church, there was this very strong trope, metaphors of women and women's spirituality, women um, engaged in religious practices. Uh, the, the stained glass windows were telling me that. The windows of Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene at the resurrection, the daughters of Jairus in healing, the God-crowned woman, all of these stained glass images were telling me this had something to do with women's participation in uh, religion and in Christian science. So that was one of the themes I was really looking for when I went through the Mary Baker Eddy papers. 
And it became clear that Mary Baker Eddy was really trying to project and articulate a, a theology that the divine has both a masculine element to it as well as a feminine uh, element. And she wanted to favor, she wanted to bring to light, if you would, the feminine element in the divine. By depicting these biblical stories, she was able to do this. But there was another element in depicting women and uh, women's religious experience that really was important to her. And that was providing ways for people or a path for people to think about her own authority as a religious figure. There weren't that many women religious figures, uh, authorities in 19th century America. Um, I'm not quite sure we could even think of one at that time, at least in the late (laughs) 19th century. Certainly no woman who had founded a, a denomination that was becoming so popular and so important, particularly in a place like Boston. By discussing women's authority, women's religious authority, she was able to kind of consolidate her own uh, leadership in a way that was acceptable to society at the time. So one of the tropes that she used was the trope of the mother, and it becomes the mother church. She encouraged her followers, particularly her inner circle, to call her mother. She used the term mother as um, an honorific. So the, the maternal trope becomes important to explain or to provide a route to thinking about female leadership that was acceptable in a society in the late 19th century that still was very conscious of differences between masculine and feminine, feminine being associated with the home, with motherhood, um, uh, the domestic sphere, and masculine being in the public sphere. And Eddie was trying to bridge those two spheres, being feminine, but in the public sphere as a religious leader. So this trope of the mother was one thing that she was using to do that. When we look at the extension church, however, the second church built in 1906, we see that that's all gone. The trope of the mother has been eradicated from it. In fact, Mary Baker Eddy found shortly after the original church was completed in, what, 1894, that the trope was already backfiring on her. It wasn't Mm. functioning the way she intended it to function. She meant her images of women in the stained glass. She meant the trope of the mother to be taken as ideas, as mental constructs, to help people follow a way to spirit, to principle, divine mind, as she called it. These were, these were tropes. They weren't the real thing. But I argue in the paper that the idea of gender, is, gender is always performed. It's always very physical. It is something that one does. One acts out one's gender. One acts out motherhood. One acts out femininity or masculinity. And that trope of gender was so material that her followers really misread the the metaphorical character and really treated her as a mother. They wanted to give her gifts. They wanted to bestow you know, their love upon her by giving her presents and so forth. The images were seen in the stained glass as her face. They saw her as divine herself. 
And for Mary Baker Eddy, this was anathema. She was very much opposed to this idea of a cult of personality. She felt it was materialistic. The gifts that she was being given were very materialistic. And she took several steps in those years, 1893, 94, 95, to try and tone down and ultimately forbid this sort of material understanding of what she had started and thought would work but didn't work. She very much put an end to it, saying, don't call me mother, and wrote into the church manual she was not to be called mother anymore. She said, don't send me gifts. It is not my face in the, in the um, stained glass. And she really felt that people had mistaken what she was saying. That's why, as it came time to build the new church, which was much larger, they needed a much larger church, all of those symbols of motherhood, all of those ideas of the divine feminine are eradicated from it. There really is very little indicating gender in the new building. With the classical architecture itself, we get a sense of rationality, democracy. Buildings by the late 19th century were being built in the neoclassical style after the widespread influence of the World's Columbia uh, Exposition in Chicago in 1893 in the White City, when classicism becomes really important in American cities. So that becomes the style for the building. Some people have connected classicism and this sort of idea of rationality that it projects. It's always often associated with classical architecture. They've connected that with masculinity. I didn't see that in any of uh, Mary Baker Eddy's writings, but I think when you look at those churches and know that history, that historical trope connected with classicism as as it is masculine, I think that makes sense. But I didn't see that in her papers. I don't think she was intending that. I know you've led some tours of these two edifices, and I'm just wondering, out of that experience, did you get a sense of what other people's responses were to these edifices? I think the response to the original church that I saw was that it fits people's expectations for a religion founded by a woman in the late 19th century. There's a real Victorian character to it. It's mm. domestic, it's homey, and people feel comfortable there. They, it, It's easy to understand and connect with the kind of intimacy that's there. And, you know, most people in the tours that I've led haven't known much about Mary Baker Eddy at all, other than, you know, she was a Victorian woman religious leader very interested in healing. And I think the original church kind of fulfills that expectation. It connects easily with that expectation. The extension is always a surprise to the people that I've taken through it. And again, these are are predominantly not members of the Christian science denomination. They're always surprised at the scale. It's, It's monumental. It's big. It's massive. And they don't see a lot of connection with this, you know, little Victorian woman or this image (laughs) of the little Victorian woman in the extension. So it's always a surprise to them. So, Jean, this this inspires me to want to just share a quote of Mary Baker Eddy from her work, No and Yes. She writes the following, quote, Let it not be heard in Boston that woman, last at the cross and first at the sepulcher, has no rights which man is bound to respect. In natural law and in religion, the right of woman to fill the highest measure of enlightened understanding 
and the highest places in government is inalienable. And these rights are ably vindicated by the noblest of both sexes. This is woman's hour, with all its sweet amenities and its moral and religious reforms. End of quote. That's such a great quote. She's very much trying to make that argument. And in her building, she's trying to make that argument. Last at the cross and first at the the sepulcher um, or the resurrection. She's very much trying to articulate that publicly. So these windows then seem quite significant as illustrations of critical ideas in Christian science. In your article, Jean, you quote another writer, Joseph Armstrong from his book, The Mother Church, A History of the Building of the Original Edifice of the First Church of Christ Scientist in Boston, Massachusetts. And and this is what you reference from Armstrong. Quote, The woman of the apocalypse and the teachings of Christian science in the book together signify that the perfect idea of God and the spiritual universe are revealed. And Christian science, when understood, also reveals that the prophecy of St. John is fulfilled, and the spiritual idea is the God-crowned woman, unquote. Then, Jean, you write the following, quote, This window, then, unites Eddie's ideas about the motherhood of God and the role of Christian science in perceiving the full nature of God. Without these understandings, she felt, humanity had no hope of prevailing against evil in all its forms, including sin and sickness, end of quote. So it seems that there's a lot there in terms of what the windows are pointing to and how the ideas of Christian science relate to biblical prophecy. I mean, she talked about what the windows meant. Several of these images are not uncommon in Protestant churches during this period, But she's using them, she's ascribing meanings to the scenes that are uncommon, that are unique to her theology of of divine mind. And so she did speak about what they meant and their significance. She articulated the fact that in this, in her particular theology, these feminine roles are much more significant that without them, there is no possibility of moving beyond sin uh, and evil, that they are really required to achieve truth. So her interpretation and her placement of the windows into the church are very unique to Christian science. So these buildings have quite a bit to say. They do. (laughs) They speak very (laughs) loudly, in fact. (laughs) So definitely worthy of a visit. Not only one visit, but multiple visits to really learn about a space. Thank you so much, Jean. This is such a fascinating topic. Just so delighted that we've been able to spend this time with you. Well, thank you very much, Jonathan. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Seekers and Scholars on gender, spirituality, and the architecture of the Mother Church. Our guest was Dr. Jean Kildee, director of the Religious Studies Program at the University of Minnesota. If you'd like to explore the subject of Christian science architecture further, we have an article on our website that might be of interest to you. 
It's on the influence of American Christian science church architecture. It's by Dr. Paul Ivey. Ivey is the author of Prayers in Stone, Christian Science Architecture in the United States, 1894 to 1930. You can find the article on this episode's webpage or by clicking on the info tab on your podcast app. Please join us for our next episode, in which we have the privilege of hosting Dr. Ruth Duck for an intimate conversation with her about her work as a hymn writer. Dr. Duck's hymn texts have found a home in a wide range of Protestant and Roman Catholic hymnals, as well as in the recently published new volume of hymns for the Christian Science Church. Within contemporary hymnody, Duck is noted for both her sensitivity and boldness around issues of gender and justice in her hymn writing. In 2013, Duck was honored as a fellow of the Hymn Society in the United States and Canada. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast is produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2019.